The following is a sermon reading from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cochrane, Alberta, preached on May 15, 2022, by Pastor Chris Cousin. Our text today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and verses 41 to 46. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. The Word of the Lord. I've had numerous conversations over the years with both Christian and non-Christian alike. The non-Christians are rarely surprising in their thinking or their positions. They have standard objections that can be answered by any thinking Christian. If there is a God, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Do you not believe in science? What about the dinosaurs? And on and on. Usually the most aggravating thing about talking to a non-Christian is when you patiently answer their objections, they don't deal with any particular answer you've given, they just continue one after another with their objections. It's pretty soon you realize that you don't really care about your they don't really care about your answers. Why? Because those that don't believe don't want to believe. They cannot believe because they don't want to believe. Their objections to the faith are not intellectual, but moral. Christianity is not a check-your-brain-at-the-door kind of religion. It never has been. But to be honest, it's not the discussions with non-Christians that drive me crazy. Like I said, they are predictable and I understand their moral condition, and so I have some patience with them. Besides, we're called to be in the world, not of the world. If I have no patience for the unbeliever, I'm demonstrating that I don't understand the patience God has with me, proving myself to be immature in my faith, or maybe showing that I really don't understand the nature of God at all. No, where I tend to have less patience is with the believer. Not all believers, but ones that say silly things. Let me give you an example or two. I was talking to a fellow Christian, an elder of a church even, who declared to me with a straight face, You know, I really don't know much about that theology stuff, in a rather sort of dismissive manner. I was gobsmacked. I was thinking, you're an elder of a church, and you're not really into that theology stuff? Obviously not, and neither are those who named you an elder. Because if they were, they would know that one of the first qualifications of an elder is the ability to teach and preach. This is not referring to those that have the ability to entertain, those that can maybe really put on a show, or even those that have gone to school to get an education degree. This is referring to the ability to teach and preach doctrine. How can you teach and preach regarding that which you don't know? It's impossible. Jesus said to Peter, Feed my sheep. 
Do you think that Peter didn't really care about that theology stuff? If he didn't, the church would never have got off the ground. All we'd have are twelve disciples of Jesus wandering around the countryside looking for Jesus' lost sheep. Hey Peter, how long are we going to wander around Capernaum looking for these sheep? John, James, did you guys know Jesus had sheep? Ridiculous, yes, but no more ridiculous than that of an elder who doesn't really do that theology stuff. Peter understood what Jesus was talking about. What is it, you think, Peter and the disciples were supposed to feed Jesus' sheep with? Goat food? Not at all. The sheep get fed sheep food, and our food is the word of God. How do you feel, or how do you feed the sheep if you don't know the word of God? This leads me to my second, second example. I was in discussion with a man regarding the church, or the nature of the church, defining what the church was and its importance. He kept saying to me something along the lines of, Chris, you seem to not understand that church is not important, but Jesus is what matters. He was one of these emergent guys. He was more than downplaying the importance of the church. He was downplaying the importance of Scripture, the very Word of God. He somehow thought that what matters in the Christian life is to be in relation to Jesus. Can anyone see the problem? I certainly hope you can. The problem is that how do we know anything about the person and work of Jesus without the Bible? How do we know anything about the definition role, and function of the church without Scripture? The answer is obvious. You can't. Without the Bible, you end up defining these things any way you like. Saints, that's not good. John chapter 6 is a heavy chapter, one that really starts to nail down who Jesus is, why he came, and he shares with us some things to understand regarding salvation. We cannot turn a blind eye to this because it might make us uncomfortable. So without further ado, let us have a look at the text. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 41. The first matter of importance here is to understand the scene. We move from the shores of the Sea of Galilee to now being in Capernaum, as we can see from verse 59. We don't know the exact time frame of this uh, next exchange, but we do know that the Jews had some time to contemplate and absorb what Jesus was saying. Have you ever had the experience of being in the company of someone who says something outrageous and you needed time to really digest what was said? One of those, did they just say what I think they said moments? This happens to me all the time. I hear something said, and it's usually a few hours to a few days later, where my brain processes what was said and comes up with many of the ramifications or implications later. Well, let's assume at minimum the Jews have had now a few hours minimum to think through what Jesus was saying. They've had the ability to discuss among each other what was said and are able to draw conclusions from it. We might say that they have a very good understanding of what Jesus said. Now they must draw a conclusion to those claims. What did they come up with? Grumbling. They've heard clearly what Jesus was claiming. I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
As we looked at last week, we understand all the implications of what Jesus was talking about, and now it's reasonable to conclude that the Jews have come to the same conclusions we have. And they grumbled. Where have we seen this sort of thing before? And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Exodus 16 and verse 2. Why were they grumbling? They were reminiscing about the good old days in Egypt. Remember when we sat around the meat pots in Egypt? Man, those were the good old days, weren't they? The leeks. Oh, the leeks. Delicious. Typical of mankind, isn't it? Remember the good old days, but we forget what came with it. Oh yeah, we were slaves to the Egyptians, forced daily to make bricks without straw, beaten and whipped for our lack of production. But oh, how we miss the stew pots. Are we crazy? What was Moses and Aaron's reaction? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Do you realize that when you grumble, dear saint, you are grumbling against the Lord? When we grumble, aren't we showing our discontent? Aren't we showing our lack of thankfulness to the Lord? What should our countenance be in all things? 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17, give thanks in all circumstances. Think like Job. Should we accept from God only good and not adversity? Job 2 and verse 10. Saints, let us not grumble. We have little to grumble about. Here we have the Galilean Jews grumbling about Jesus, grumbling against the Lord, the God-man, God in the flesh, right in their midst, right to his face. And what was the real problem? They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? This situation might remind you of Jesus' time in Nazareth. Is this not Joseph's son? Luke chapter 4 and verse 22. We see soon afterwards, when Jesus makes clear who he claims to be, the hometown crowd becomes enraged to the point of homicide. They tried throwing Jesus off the cliffside. The folks in Nazareth knew Jesus as a boy. They knew who Jesus was, or at least they thought they did. Now Jesus is in Capernaum, and the people there knew him as well. They knew his lineage. They knew who his earthly father was, Joseph. They knew his mother, Mary. What was Jesus talking about, his father who is in heaven? Here we have a group of people who understand what Jesus is talking about. But because of their physical understanding, meaning the things they experienced or saw with their own eyes, they could not believe what Jesus was saying. How does one come down from heaven when they know that he was born of Mary? Isn't this a truism? We see or experience something that flies in the face of what we know to be true, and we can't wrap our mind around it, so we reject it. In fact, there is an expression that sums up this nicely. Most people don't really want the truth. They just want constant reassurance that what they believe is the truth. I've been on a bit of an adventure in the past number of years. I've asked myself on more than one occasion, how do I know? It's a rather eye-opening experience. 
I have come to the understanding that I know far less than I thought I did, and I assume most things that I claim to know. The things I do know, I'm more convinced than ever about. Everything else, not so much. So here we have the Jews that are more than struggling with Jesus' claims. After all, they know him. They know where he comes from. They know his family lineage. The problem is, they don't know what they don't know. And when confronted with new information or new claims, they reject them because they don't fit into their current understanding or paradigm. Well, what happens? Jesus looks at them with pity and feels bad for them. So he backs down and tells them, Oh, I know this is hard for you to understand, so you know what? Forget everything I said. He didn't do that, did he? So what did he do? He put his proverbial foot to the floor. That's what he did. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves, verse 43. First, he chastises them. Why? We have to first understand the situation. Jesus has said some pretty hard things. I am the bread of life. On top of that, he claims all that the Father gives me will come to me. Assuming that we have our timeline correct, the Jews have been mulling this over for a while and their conclusion was one of unbelief. What was their assumption? Their assumption was that these things could be discerned via discussion and debate. The assumption was that they could figure this out on their own by their own intellect. Nowhere does it say that they went to the scriptures to see if these things were true. Nowhere in the scriptures does it tell us that they went to God in prayer, asking for wisdom or grace. These things would require humility. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, sheds a little light on this understanding when he says, The natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Chapter 2, verse 14. Why did the Jews reject the claims of Christ? Because Jesus was speaking about spiritual things and they, being natural men, could not understand them, and could not accept them. And Jesus makes this point even more clear in the next verse, which, in a way, doubling down on what he said in verse 37. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 45. This is truly an eye-opening statement. Jesus here gives what is known as a universal negative proposition. In verse 37, Jesus gave a positive proposition. We carefully went through that in order to establish the doctrine of election. I promised that Jesus was going to make it even more explicit, and here it is. No one is, as stated, a universal negative. No one is, as stated, a universal negative. What it means is no person, not a single one, without exception. The next word is can. Can is a word that uh, describes ability. We often get the words can and may mixed up. Children, we often ask, Mom, 
can I have a cookie? The proper response is, of course you can, but you may not. If this confuses you, it's because you are mixing up the word can, meaning the ability to do something, with may, the word used when asking permission to do something. You see the vital difference here. So Jesus here is saying, no person has the ability to. What? Come to me. No person has the ability to come to me. This leaves humanity in a serious pickle, doesn't it? All people are infected with moral inability to come to Jesus. We are in the realm of hopelessness at this point, are we not? I mean, if we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins, if all of us, without exception, do not seek after God, if we all, without exception, have no ability to come to Jesus, and Jesus is the bread of life, how does one come? After all, did we not cover last week that Jesus said, Come, believe? But there is good news, and that good news comes in one word, unless. Unless is what is called a necessary condition. This is something that must take place before the desired result can happen. In this case, what is that? The Father who sent me draws him. Now before we go further, because most Christians today have what is called a semi-Pelagian understanding of salvation, they look at the term draws and interpret it to mean something akin to flies being drawn to honey, or they interpret it to mean entice or persuade. This is the problem with translations. We read a text and understand it to mean whatever fits our theology. In this case, people often read this and think of drawing with synonyms, like persuade or entice. But the problem is the Greek word used here is crystal clear in its meaning. John uses the term helko, which can be translated a few ways, but pay close attention to see what they all have in common. Helko can mean to pull in. It can mean to drag. It can mean to draw. It can mean to haul in. It can mean to lead by force or it can mean to compel. Are any of those synonymous with entice or persuade? The answer should be an emphatic no. In fact, when we look elsewhere in Scripture where this term is used, we see in Acts chapter 21 and verse 30 where Paul was seized and dragged out of the temple. Was Paul enticed? or persuaded to leave the temple? Hardly. So if we were to make an expanded version of the text to make it crystal clear as to its meaning, we might say, not a single person has the ability to come to me unless the Father compels him to do so. Can Jesus be any more clear as to what he is claiming? And yet we have many today that obstinately hold to some form of Pelagianism, one which claims God gives all men the ability to come and to believe, and he draws all men equally. Some even use John chapter 12 and verse 32, where Jesus claims to draw all men to himself to make the point that Jesus does not, in any way, discriminate on who comes to him. However, once again, 
All it takes is the smallest discretion when extrapolating the meaning of what Jesus was talking about to see that he wasn't saying that which was drawing all men without exception, but that he was drawing all men without distinction, which aligns beautifully with the biblical understanding that we are to go to all nations and preach the gospel, that God shows no partiality. Salvation is for both the Jew and the Gentile. But because of our sin, because we don't like the idea that God chooses some unto everlasting life and others unto everlasting death, we want to make it fair. That's what we're all about, especially now in a very woke context. We're all about what is fair. But as usual, we don't think through the ramifications of what fairness entails. Was it fair that Jesus died on the cross? No. Right there should be the end of any Christian talking about what is fair. I deserved the cross. I deserve the eternal wrath of God for my sin against him, and so does every one of you. The fact that God chose to save some, the fact that God chose to save you and me from eternal damnation, wasn't fair but it was loving and gracious and merciful and kind. And instead of downplaying God's role in salvation, we, in our insistence on being the ones in charge, want to play a role, even if it's the smallest of roles, in our own salvation. Personally, I know me. If my salvation depended even one iota on me, I am lost for all eternity. I praise God for election. Jesus continues, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Verse 45a. Jesus here gives a brief explanation or presents the evidence of the Father's drawing, and he does so by quoting the prophet Isaiah in chapter 54 and verse 13, which says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. It is through teaching that the children of God will be compelled to come and will believe. I want to also point out that Jesus, while quoting Isaiah, isn't saying all people will be taught by God. The Jews would know full well the scripture that Jesus was quoting, and the exact quote has to do with the children of God being taught by God. This would be quite the insult to the Jews, as Jesus has already declared that they are not believers in the bread of life, the one who was sent by the Father. How would the Jews have understood who the children of God were? They were the Jews. Their father was Abraham. The promises were to Abraham. Therefore, they are descendants of Abraham, and therefore the children of God. Here Jesus says, you are not the children of God. Only those called by God are the children of God, and they are called by God through the teaching by God. Jesus clearly didn't read the book How to Win Friends and Influence People, or the latest church growth strategy. And how do we understand this being taught by God? Jesus explains later on in John's Gospel that it is the Holy Spirit whom he will send, who will have the role of teacher. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 14 and verse 26. Jeremiah spoke of a new covenant when God would put his law in the minds of the people and write it on their hearts. Jeremiah 31 verse 31. How will that happen? By the Holy Spirit. God promised a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 36 and verse 24. How does one get a new heart and a new spirit? By the Holy Spirit. The prophet Joel anticipates the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all nations. Chapter 2 and verse 28. Isn't this what has happened over the last 2,000 years? People have been taught and reborn by the Holy Spirit. They've heard the gospel, came to Jesus and believed upon him, loved him and in obedience loved others, and told them the gospel, who in turn were given new hearts and a new spirit all the way up to today. The Spirit's work is not done and won't be until the day Christ returns. The Spirit's work is not done until every one of God's chosen sheep has been found and brought home. Jesus continues, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 45b. As further evidence of Christ's claim, he offers the experiential evidence. Every person who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Christ. I want you to notice one important thing here. It's not every person who has heard the Father comes to Christ. There are many who have heard preaching, heard the gospel. Some have even tasted the goodness of God through the church, as we learn in Hebrews, but never come to Christ. It's not every person who learned from the Father who comes to Christ. I would make the argument that everything we are able to do comes from God. In Him we move and live and have our being. That pretty much takes care of everything, yes? There are many very bright scholars and laypersons who know lots about what the Bible says. Think Bart Ehrman, brilliant New Testament scholar, who doesn't believe. He has not come to Christ. But only those who receive what may be called divine illumination, a divine hearing and teaching that come to Christ. They are the children of God. Those that have heard and have been taught by the Father. They have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that long to follow after him. Those are the children of God. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Verse 46. When one reads this verse, it seems rather a bit of a throw-in at first glance, but we know John, through the Holy Spirit, doesn't have any throw-in verses. So upon closer inspection, we see that there is some weighty significance here. When we take the previous verse regarding those who have learned from the Father, there could be a misunderstanding in thinking that one may have or can attain some sort of mystical or direct access to the Father in some kind of personal way. Jesus clarifies in no small measure that that, of course, is not what he's talking about. No one has seen the Father. The best Moses could do was get a glimpse of his hind parts while hiding in the cleft of a rock. But Jesus here is once again making the claim that being from God and being sent by God, 
he has seen the Father. In relation to his claim that those who are taught by the Father come to him, and that no one has seen the Father but himself, is a way of saying those that are taught by God are only taught by God, if they hear Jesus. Any teaching or apologetic that leaves out the person and work of Jesus Christ does not hear Jesus, and is not taught by God. It's one thing to make our unbelieving neighbors think about godly things or philosophical things that they have never heard before, but do not be fooled. Unless Jesus is proclaimed, the gospel has not gone forth. How then can they call on the one in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone to preach? Romans 10 and verse 14. Conclusion. I started off this sermon this morning talking about theology, talking about doctrine. My favorite teacher was R.C. Sproul, and he wrote many books, one of them that had the title, Everyone's a Theologian. The point of the book, as he said in the introduction, was that it's not whether you're a theologian or not. Everyone is a theologian. The real question is, are you a good theologian or a bad one? Anytime you open your mouth and say anything about God or his creation, whether you believe in him or not, you are saying something, making claims about God and who he is, or who he is not. When we fail to read and study our Bibles, we are sheep that have gone astray because we don't know any better. Knowledge of God leads to worship of God. We must avoid being people with zeal without knowledge. Hosea 4 verse 6, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. If you are a Christian, you are one in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. Jesus, through the word of God, has given us a lesson or two to ponder and study. Maybe you haven't really heard this before. Maybe some of what you've heard today is different than what you've previously understood. That's okay. We all learn as we go. But I would be very careful to not easily dismiss what is said and written in Scripture. Jesus makes claims that make people uncomfortable, and it should. But if you are a a child of God and desire obedience to Him, it is between you and God to iron out the wrinkles. Doctrine is important. You are all theologians, whether you like it or not. May I humbly suggest you strive to be good ones. Amen.